Well, good morning. Okay, I heard you all louder during the music. Good morning. It's good to be back with you all up here uh, again, not just in the music or whatever, but be able to, to share God's Word with you again this morning. Um, Gilbert and I, a couple of months ago, were meeting together and just kind of talking about, we really felt like there was a nudge that, uh, you know, as we started talking about what happens after the AHA series uh, and responded to that nudge. We got together, we planned out this series and then uh, started planning out Christmas. We didn't know what would happen this week, uh, but God did. And so, uh, you know, it's a pleasure and honor to serve this morning uh, while Gilbert and Lisa have been uh, this week caring for her family uh, with the passing of her father uh, on Tuesday. So just continue to pray for Gilbert and Lisa as they go through the grieving and the mourning process. Uh, encourage and strengthen them as a community. And uh, let's share today, together today in uh, God's Word as we wrap up the Life in HD series. Uh, Gilbert shared the last couple of weeks of what it means to get our vision clear, to be able to see in high definition by seeing through God's perspective. And uh, today I, I have uh, the daunting task of breaking down chapters three and four, but don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll make it, uh, we'll compress it. But uh, looking at how do we, once we get clear vision, once we start to see in HD, how do we keep it? How do we, what are some tools that we can stick in the tool bag to help us keep our vision clear instead of allowing ourselves to drift back into standard definition and sort of that hazy way of living? So would you pray with me this morning and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Father, I do thank you for, uh, for this time. We, we pray for Gilbert and Lisa, Lord, as they, uh, as they mourn, as they, as they grieve. And we thank you, Lord, that the memorial service went well yesterday. And uh, we as a community, Lord, uh, just thank you for their service and their love and their care. And uh, Father, we just ask that your presence would be palpable uh, to them and their family as, uh, as they go through this time frame. Help us, Lord, prompt us to love and care for them uh, and others who are hurting right now, Lord. Just uh, help us to, as a community, be aware as we go into the season of, of celebration of your, your coming, to be among us, that, Lord, we would behave as if you are among us. And uh, we just be aware of, of each other and each other's needs and caring for one another uh, throughout this season. Thank you, God, for that. And uh, just open our hearts and minds to what you have to share with us this morning and help us, Lord, to take away uh, what, what we need to so that you can work with us and change us from the inside out. God, we praise you and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name. So I was about 10 years old, and it was the end of Little League baseball season, and one of the guys on my team invited everybody over for a swim party. Everybody ever, you know, it's the end of the season, hey, come on over, we're going to have a swim party. So we, well, maybe they don't do that so much anymore, but when I was a kid, we did. Uh, now, I shared with you in a previous message as some of you have reminded me, you know, are we going to have surfboards out this message? No, we don't have surfboards out this message. But I didn't learn to swim until much later in my youth years. So it was somewhere around middle school that I actually became good at swimming above the water. I could swim okay under the water, but above the water, for whatever reason, there was just a, there was just a block for me. And my parents tried. I mean, we did the lessons. We, you know, my parents had a pool, for goodness sakes. You know, so we, you know, I could do it under the water, but on top of the water was just not a thing. The, but the other part of that was, as long as I could touch, I was good. And there, there was a part of me that just had this mindset that, you know what, I, I, I get the concept, 
And as long as I can touch bottom, I can muddle through. So why put the effort and the time into learning the skill of swimming? I mean, after all, if I, even if I went out bodyboarding in three to four foot waves at the ocean, I could still touch, relatively. So why bother? I got this, right? So here we are at this swim party. Everyone else is swimming and jumping in off the diving board and having a great time. And I thought, okay. I had scoped out the pool from the shallow end. I had sort of felt my way towards the deep end. And I found out there's like a two-inch ledge at about three foot deep all the way around the perimeter of the pool. I thought, that's cool. If I jump off at the right angle, I can just kind of bob my way over there, get my foot on that, and I'm good. So that's what we did. I got out, and I don't remember what we were doing. You know, sometimes you're jumping off the diving board, people throw a ball, you try to catch it as you jump in, all that kind of stuff. I think we were doing something like that. And I jumped off, first couple times were fine. For some reason, the last time, and I know it was the last time, I don't remember how many times it was, but I know it was the last time because I didn't get back in the pool after this. <laughs> Somewhere around that last time, I jumped off, and I don't know what was different. I don't remember my foot slipping. I don't remember any of that. All I know is that when I hit the water after I jumped off the diving board, I popped up, and I was nowhere near the side. And there was a moment of like, oh, okay. And I went down the first time. And you, what's, what's the rule with swimming? Three times, right? You go down three times, okay? So I go down the first time. And there's this thought in the back of my mind of, now remember, I'm 10. You know, there's this thought in the back of my mind, well, there's really nothing for me to push off of. Because, you know, to swim underwater, for me, I needed something to push off of. You know, I wasn't real strong with the motion, but underwater, I was good if I had something to push off. I didn't have anything to push off of. So as I went down the first time, I was like, well, you know, if I just kind of doggy paddle my way through, I might get closer to the side. Sure enough, I got over far enough that when I bobbed up, there was a side. I was like, all right, cool. And I reached out and I put my foot on that little two-inch ledge and I reached for the concrete and I don't remember why, but my foot slipped, my hand missed, and I was down for two. And as I went down for the second one, I was thinking, uh, hmm, I wasn't, really, I wasn't really scared per se, but I knew I couldn't touch. Like I knew that it wasn't okay for me to try and go deeper because it was, a, it was a, I forget, it was like a 10, 12 foot pool. So, you know, I wasn't getting down to the bottom to push off. And uh, so I'm, I'm thinking, hmm. I flapped my arms and I sort of did this and I got back up to the surface. Well, because I fell off the edge on attempt two, I didn't get much of a breath. So I get up to the surface, I barely get a breath. So I can't call out, I can't shout for help, nothing. I barely got a breath and water's splashing around my face and I'm down for three. And as I go down for three, I remember looking up at the surface of the water. I mean, this is crystal clear in my memory. I remember looking up at the surface of the water and seeing the sky sky mostly, I could sort of see the edge of the pool and I could sort of see shadows of people. And it was literally like a movie when everything slows down, you know, there's the danger music, you know, and you're just waiting to hear what happens. You know, and, and you can sort of hear people in the background, you know, laughing, playing, but it's all in slow motion. It's like, it's almost the slow version of the Peanuts adults talking, you know, it's just, you know, it's just, and I remember as I went down thinking, 
Hmm. And I wasn't terrified yet. There was, a, there was a part of me that sort of took it as a curiosity. I was 10. You know, it's like, hmm, this is new. <laughs> what do I do now? Never been here before. And as I started to slip farther down, it dawned on me, this is not good. I had never heard the three, the three, you know, going under three times rule. I'd never heard that. But there was something that dawned on me. He's like, this is not good. I don't have a whole lot of air. I can't reach the bottom to push off. Third attempt getting to the surface didn't go so well. What's going to happen now? And just at the moment where I began to be afraid, I didn't start to panic, but I was afraid that I might not come back up. I never saw the hand. I mean, I could see the surface, never saw the hand. But a hand reached out, grabbed my wrist, yanked me up out of the water. And so I'm hovering now above the water waist, you know, from the waist up. I'm just kind of stunned. Like, oh, suddenly there's daylight and air. <gasps> and I'm staring face to face with my rescuer who goes, Nathan! It was my sister. She didn't know it was me. All she saw was somebody struggling. She happened to catch somebody struggling. She reached in, she grabbed and lifted me up. And after all the years, I mean, we're seven years apart, so not only do we have sibling bickering and rivalry and all that kind of stuff, but with a seven-year difference, I mean, I tormented the daylights out of her. I, I was the younger one, but I tormented the daylights out of her because, you know, the baby always gets away with it. Um, but after all that sibling bickering and rivalry and everything throughout the years, no matter what we faced, for the remainder of our years growing up together, this moment always kept my eyes clear in regard to family, in regard to my life, and of course in regard to swimming lessons. I, uh, I, did, I, did, I did eventually learn how to swim and I'm, I'm quite good now, so we're, we're all good there. But there are moments like that that we have, right? Have, have any of you ever had that moment where you just go, hmm, this is beyond me. There is no way I'm going to get myself out of this one. Anybody? Yeah. yeah. You live long enough. I mean, you come to the end of yourself. And even in asking that question, for those of you, even if you didn't raise your hand, just in asking the question, that moment when you've come to the end of yourself, and I've, you know, I've had several, I'm sure many of you have had several, but there's probably that one that's already in your mind. You're already seeing it. You're already reliving it. You're already, you can fe almost feel those feelings and hear those sounds. I mean, even just telling that story, I can hear the water. I can feel the water. I can remember my sister's face. When you have a moment like that, it changes you. It changes you because you, for the first time, or maybe you're reminded again, but when it happens for the first time, you realize the only reason you're here is because there is a power beyond you. There's a power beyond you that has caused you to be here. That you have no power to keep yourself here. You have no power to stay no power to overcome. The only reason you're here is because there is a power that has given you the opportunity to be here. Maybe for you that's been a powerful moment that came out of a positive challenge. You know, some, something that was out in front of you, you thought you could never do, and boom, you get it, and you're like, wow, that was awesome. I know I totally didn't have the skills to do that, but somehow. Maybe that came out of a dark season in your life where you were at the end of your rope and 
You know, you're, you're, you're you know, harming yourself to try and make yourself feel alive or remind yourself that you're alive. And, and you just feel like there's no way I can come out of this. And out of that comes this awareness that I, I'm, not, I'm not here in my own strength. Whatever it was for you, there's an awareness that settles in that says, I'm here for a reason. I didn't put myself here. I want you to turn over, if you have your Bibles with you or if you're on your, your devices, you know, turn to Philippians chapter 3. Because I want to start with that realization today. As we wrap up Philippians, I want to start with the realization that we are utterly dependent upon the grace and the love of God to even be here. We're utterly dependent upon the grace and the love of God to even take the breath that we have. The fact that the world has air and we're able to breathe, that is all by the grace of God. And that life that he's given us, his life in us and through us is an amazing gift. And as Gilbert said at the beginning of the series, God desires to fill that gift with joy. He desires to fill our life with his joy. So that no matter what we face in the journey, we can reflect him. We can show what he's done. To keep that crystal clear in our vision, though, we need a couple of tools. And so as we go through Philippians chapter 3, I want to look at some tools that we, may not, uh, that we may not have in our tool bag already. We may have some of them, but hopefully we can look at them, see what they are, because Paul writes this letter to Philippians trying to explain to them, you know, to have great joy, but, the, but there's tools that he gives them in the midst of that. Say, keep your vision clear so that you can keep this joy. He starts off, verse 1, chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, brothers and sisters, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those, those men who do evil, the mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I've more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, of the people, I'm from the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew among Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, as, as for zeal, I was persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. But whatever's to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish, trash, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering so that becoming like him in his death, I may somehow be like him and attain resurrection from the dead. As you're going to see, we go through these sections, there's a lot that Paul has in here, and I'm going to just distill a few things out. Hopefully you did read it as we came up to this, and you've already been reflecting on these things. So I'm just trusting that we're going to, we're going to pick up on how God wants to tweak or touch any of those areas he's already been talking to you about. 
Our first point is very simple. As Paul lays this out, he says, it's our piety, not our pedigree, that allows me to rejoice in God's righteous life. It's our piety, not our pedigree, that allows me to rejoice in God's righteous life. And let me break that down a little bit. Piety, uh, you know, a lot of times that gets a negative connotation in our culture. You pious face goo head. I mean, there's just a, you know, there's a, there's a you know, but it's, it's really not a negative word. A piety is very simply, it means uh, to consistently apply what you believe in your life. Okay, so that's it's piety. And Proverbs 21.5 says it this way, persistent plotting leads to profit. And those who are lazy are headed for poverty. The, the NIV says it this way, the plans of the diligent lead to profit and the lazy are, are headed for poverty. But the persistent plotting, I love that. Persistent plotting leads to great gain or leads to profit. That's the idea of piety. We're just taking what we believe, we're taking what we know, and we're consistently applying it day after day, moment after moment. And what is a pedigree? Well, most of you probably have heard that term only in regards to dogs. Um, and so, you know, some of you are like checking your collar, like, what's my, what's my, no, I'm just kidding. But, but a pedigree is, is that innate quality or ability within you, your bloodline if you will. So maybe you come from a, a, a prestigious family name, or, or maybe you come from a line of athletes, and so you've just got all the, all the sport genes, or maybe you come from a line of artists, and you've got all the artist genes, you know, whatever it is. That's, that's pedigree. Pedigree is this innate ability, this innate quality that resides in who you are, and your ability to do it yourself. The, the pedigree is the part that, that says, I got this. Okay, make sense? And when Paul says, we're not like those mutilators of the flesh, we are the true circumcision, he, he's, he's drawing a parallel, and I'm not going to unpack everything about circumcision, because some of you really don't care, um, but, but you know, the, the, the whole sign of circumcision was a sign of allegiance to God. It was, a, it was a physical representation of the promise of God, of dedicating oneself to the promise of God, and anything that you create would be dedicated to God. Think about that for a second. That was what it was. And there were those that after the, the Gentiles became believers in Jesus, there were a group of Jews who were going around and saying, well, to be truly with God, you have to go and, and get circumcised too, and you've got to do all these religious rituals. And that's why Paul was like, whoa, 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 hold up. They came to this by faith. Jesus fulfilled that covenant so that they can simply come to God by faith. They don't have to go backwards through all of Judaism in order to come forwards to follow Jesus. Make sense? And, when, and the way he, he does the, the wordplay, if you look at it, and I'm not going to go into the Greek for you, but, you know, because Gilbert was already picking me about the Greek. You know, but, but, but if you look in the Greek, the wordplay does is those mutilators of the flesh versus we're the true circumcision. It, it's kind of like, you know, they use a sledgehammer instead of a scalpel. That's kind of the imagery that he's creating. You know, or, or maybe you've heard that analogy that when the only tool you have is a hammer, the whole world's a nail. You know, you just bash everything and hope something good comes out of it. That, that's kind of the picture that Paul's trying to paint when he describes this. Is don't listen to them because they're just, they're just hammering away at this religious concept. This is not piety. This is not persistent plotting in a relationship with Jesus. This is something else. 
This is adding something into that relationship with Jesus that doesn't belong there. So I hope you can see that difference, that there's a difference between just doing a whole bunch of religious action that has no purpose. There's a difference between that and having a relationship with Jesus where you're taking intentional, consistent steps forward. So when we believe that we're invincible or we're owed what's ahead of us, when we act like we got this, Think about that. Let, that. let that land on you for a minute. We're functioning out of our pedigree. And our lenses are beginning to fog. When we, begin, when we believe we're invincible or we're owed what's ahead of us, we act like we got this and our lenses begin to fog. So here's the tool. The principle is it's our piety that allows me to rejoice in God's righteousness. But here's the tool. The daily personal scheduling or prioritizing of time with God and in the Word. You go, man, you got to lead with that one? That's my first tool? Okay, some of you are like, yes. You know, those of you who are teachers, I know, especially, you're like, oh, lesson plan. Day one, you know, day two, 55 minutes reflecting with God. No, I'm making fun of teachers. But teachers tend to be really good at this one. Because it's what they live every day. Am I right? I mean, this is what you live every day. You've got to have a plan from start to finish. You've got to stay on schedule because if you don't get it all done, it gets pushed to tomorrow. And you've got to get it all done before the end of the, the marking period. So teachers tend to be really good at this. Really well-organized people tend to be good at this. Those of us who are artistic or a little more go with the flow, we struggle with this one. We do. But the tool, the tool can't stay in our tool bag and, and just be all shiny. We have to get it dirty. We have to practice with it. And, and the first tool, if we're going to be persistently plotting in our relationship with Jesus, is to schedule ourselves somehow. And I don't mean you have to like put it on the calendar from 8 to 7. If that helps you, great. But you've got to have a habit that you form. And if you really have a hard time forming new habits, set it in your calendar for 30 days. Because there's something magic about, you know, I'm not magic, but there's something special about 30 days that with human beings that when we do something for 30 days, it's a lot easier for us to continue doing it. So take 30 days, set aside a time where you are intentionally spending time with God, spending time in God's Word. It will make a difference. And you'll begin to see a little bit more growth in your relationship with God. Because it's, it's that persistent and focused devotion Persistent action and discipline to stay close to God that allows us to live and focus and see clearly. Specifically, Paul tells the Philippians this. It's not just religious duties or actions, but a deliberate laying aside of position or title or credit or advantage of any kind. But notice he isn't laying it aside just because it's a cultural thing or because he's trying to even things out. Paul, look at how he says it. He says of all the things that I have. I mean, he was, he was the one within society that if they were going to put a measuring line out there and say, you know, what does it look like to be like the perfect religious person? He was it. He had it all. He had the pedigree. And by, at this t- point in his journey, he says, I consider all that rubbish. It's all trash. The only thing that matters is knowing Jesus. And somehow aligning my life with, you know, dying to myself the way that he died to himself so that I can live the way that he lives. Always persistently plotting towards Jesus. The, the image I get in my mind when I think of this is, is, you know, daily getting up and just locking wrists with Jesus 
You know, like the person who ripped me out of the water. Locking wrists with Jesus daily and engaging with his focus in the day. What is, he, what is he passionate about? What is he confident about? What hope does he have for me and for others around me throughout the day? Because if I can do that, if I can hang on to him, he's already hanging on to me. He's already hanging on to me. And that's what Paul means when he says, you know, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He's already got a plan and a purpose for you. So how do we intentionally put ourselves in a position where we're seeing that more clearly? But in order to do that, okay, so we can do the scheduling, we can get ourselves in a habit, we can start going into the Word, but in order to do that, we need a couple more tools in our tool belt or in our toolbox to help us stay persistently plotting. Look at verses 12 through 21. I'm just going to hit those real quick. He says, not that I've already obtained all this or that I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which for, for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I strain towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, and the implication is you think differently than one another, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before and now say, even with tears in my eyes, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame. And what he means by that is their shame, they flaunt what is actually shameful for them. They flaunt and make themselves popular by it. It's not a stretch for us to figure out where that is in our culture or even in ourselves. But our citizenship, or their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enabled him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. All right, for your notes, here it is. The teachable and discerning person will know God and be transformed by him. The teachable and discerning person will know God and be transformed to be like him. Let me break those down. Teachable means we know we have something to learn in every situation. No matter how much we think we know, in every situation, we know we have something to learn. And discerning means we fact check. So it's interesting these two are right next to each other. Because if you fact check, you know that everything you hear is not necessarily fact. So you're open to learn, but you're also willing to double check and make sure that what you're hearing, you're not just kind of taking in without, uh, without checking it. So not believing everything we hear, but testing it according to fact and truth, particularly checking it with God's word. Verse 15 is really curious to me because he tosses this in here. And, and I can only believe, that, because where he ends in chapter 14, that there must have been some bickering going on. There must have been some opinions that were happening within the community where it was like, well, I think it should go this way, and I think it should go that way. And so on the major issues, they agreed, but some sort of secondary issue had swept in, and you know, especially Yudia and Syntyche, as we'll see in a minute, they, they, these two ladies must have just had these little facts, you know, like, I think Yudia, but you know, they're just bickering at each other, right? And he says, he says, the mature take this position that God will reveal the difference 
Whatever we disagree on, trusting that God will reveal what we do and do not know. In other words, we know we don't know all of it. And so if we're humble in that with one another, no matter how confident we are in our position, no matter how confident we are in what we understand, we're willing to let God reveal the truth to both of us, understanding we both have something more to learn. So that's, that's kind of like the mature position of, of teachability. So teachable is, is, okay, I know I have lots to learn, but when it comes to the fact that you've learned a lot and you think you know a lot, the mature position says, okay, you know what? You're presenting a pretty challenging case and we're not seeing eye to eye on this. So you know what? Let's keep the standard God has already given us. Let's keep relationship. Let's keep unity. Let's keep trust. Let's keep respecting one another and trust that God will reveal the difference. God will open our eyes to see how we resolve this. Maybe it's just not the right time for us to resolve it, but God has a plan for how he's going to resolve it and what he's going to do as a result. That's the mature position. Rather than, I disagree with you, Ah, you know, and then take to social media, you know, and create videos of why that person's horrible. And, you know, I mean, just, this is, that's what Yudi and Syntyche, I think, might have done today. But uh, I'm just guessing. So the tool is this. Ask questions. If you're going to be teachable and discernible and let God transform you from the inside out so that you be like him, we have to learn to ask questions. This is really hard for me. I'll just be real candid with you. I am an external processor. And yet it took me 40 years to realize I'm an introvert who's an external processor. Everybody thought I was an extrovert for many, many years of my life because I externally process. But I discovered through, you know, 20 years of ministry, I'm actually an introvert who externally processes, which is a really difficult place to live, and I don't invite you there. Um, And if you ever wonder why, you know, I don't seem to figure Nate out. Well, don't worry about it. You're not the first. So, uh, but the, the thing about being an introvert who's an external processor is there's some of my wiring that I get conceptual things very quickly. And so I'll grab something, and I already got my, my fork in the meat, like, right away. It's like, oh, yeah, that must be it. <laughs> Doesn't mean I'm always right, but I'm already on the trail really quick. And so an external processor takes that and says, let's process. Let's go. And so, you know, I go into it, and other people are like, whoa, I haven't even got that. Like, where's the meat? I don't even know what, like, what's the question? Slow down. And so for somebody like me, I've had to work really hard at asking questions. Extroverts can, can struggle with this too, but some, some extroverts are really good question askers. I find by and large though, introverts, true introverts are great question askers because they're refle- there's a story running back here in their mind and they're thinking, hmm, what don't I know? And they're reflecting and then they'll ask the next question. And they're happy to let you talk because you're being extroverted and they don't have to. <laughs> so just like, they become really good at asking questions. But all of us need to be good at asking questions. And not just, you know, asking a question sort of railroads somebody towards our point, but open-ended learning questions. That's the tool that we have to polish up in our toolkit. And here's the litmus test if we, you know, to check yourself on whether you're teachable and discerning. The litmus test is to ask yourself, what's my motive? Whenever you're doing something, what's my motive? Why am I doing what I'm doing? So, for example, do I eat because I'm hungry or because food is fuel? There's a a simple difference there. Do I eat because food makes me feel good, and I feel good when I eat that food, or do I eat good food because food is fuel? 
All right, now I'm going to meddle even further. Is sex for creation the genesis of new life? Do you know that actually the word genitals, sorry, I know it's circumcision, it's in there, we just got to go there. But do you know the word genitals actually comes from the word genesis? Because you were intended by your very design. So when we say we're made in the image of God, we're, we're in the image of God. Not only do you have his creativity, not only do you have his spirit, but he created life. And he put it into the very dynamic of who you are to create life. So is sex about Genesis? Is it about creation of new life? Or is it for my pleasure, my expression, my identity? When we wrestle with that, when we wrestle with that, we need to be teachable. We need to be discerning and let God lead us on that. Do I listen to this week's message or last week's message? And do I see if U-R-W-R-O-N-G is actually a Greek word? Or whether Gilbert was actually just making fun of me. <laughs> I, I, I do love you, Gil. Uh, but the simple point is to know that we're not God. But to also know that other people are not God. No matter how much authority they have, nobody's God except God. And so we're teachable, we're willing to learn, we're willing to ask the questions, we're willing to discover more information, but we constantly fact check, we constantly discern is it true? Is it factual? Does it square with what God has said? And we let God always be right. Living this way positions us to let God shape and transform us from the inside out. And this goes hand in hand with our last couple of tools that Paul puts in here. And I'm going I'm to unpack these as quickly as I possibly can. The point is this. We must keep the peace and focus on the good. Listen to what Paul says. He says, therefore, verse, verse 1 of chapter 4, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, is this is how you should stand firm. So he's given us a couple tools, and now he says, these tools will help you stand as you do the rest. I plead with Yudi and Sintikin. and I've already told you about what he says to them, but you know, I ask you, all of you in the community to help these women who've contended at my side. They've been actively involved in the mission, but help them get along. They're struggling. And verse 4, he goes right into it. Here are the things that can help us. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, submit your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely or admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things, or the word there is dwell on these things. Whatever you have learned or received from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. There are two huge pieces there. But the point is we must keep the peace and focus on the good to walk with God and in his joy. That's the point. Let me give you the tool. There's two tools in here. Notice he says, peace beyond our understanding guards our hearts and our minds. Peace beyond our understanding guards our hearts and our minds. And it's because of this tool. The tool is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And he repeats it. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And we think, oh, rejoice means wee, right? 
You think, oh, praise, you know, so I need to sing praise songs every day. I've actually heard sermons where people say, you know, if you just sing a few praise songs every morning. Now, that's not bad, but that's not what rejoice means. Rejoice means I'm satisfied with Jesus alone. When he says rejoice in the Lord, that means my whole satisfaction, the deepest satisfaction I have in my day is from Jesus alone. There is nothing, there's no material thing, there's no agenda item, there's nothing at my work, at my, in my family, not the way people behave around me, nothing around me is going to bring satisfaction in the way that God can. And he says, if you are going to stay clear and keep the peace and stay focused, it starts with being able to delight in Jesus as your whole satisfaction, him alone. Another way to say it is, at the end of this life, if you had nothing left, which by the way, when we die, we take nothing with us. So whatever is satisfying you today, it's all going to be gone. All gone. At the end of it, and you stand face to face with Jesus, will he be enough? Is he worthy of your life's goal? Do you live with a present knowledge that even if you had nothing, he's enough? That's what Paul says. Cultivate in our heart a, a, a joy and a satisfaction in Jesus alone. That, that if, even if we lose everything else, Jesus is enough. And he says, out of that, we'll be able to live in harmony with one another. Because if Jesus is enough, it doesn't matter if you say something offensive to me. It doesn't matter if we disagree. It doesn't matter. You know, Yudi and Sintiki, you can get along. Because if Jesus is enough, you don't have to argue over secondary things. Jesus is enough. He's satisfied that part of you that needs to win the argument. He's the satisfaction for that, not you and not your winning. We can be gentle towards everyone. Yeah, yeah, husbands and wives, I see that. You know, I, say, yeah, I, say, I told you you didn't have to win that argument. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Love it, I live there. Um, <laughs> no stories. Um, we resist anxiousness. We can be gentle towards others and we resist anxiousness. Why? Because Jesus is enough. We're satisfied. We don't have to get on the edge. And we're able to talk with God and ask God for what we need. Why? Because if he's enough, we understand he's the source of everything that we need. So we go to him. And there is one piece of personal discipline there, though, that we have to stay thankful to God for anything and everything we have. If Jesus is enough, it's easy for us to kind of say, you know what, even if I had nothing, thank you for the glass of water this morning. Thank you for clean water in my home, Lord. Thank you that I was able to get up and take a shower. If Jesus is enough, it cultivates in our hearts thankfulness. And here's the next tool. The promise that goes with the tool is God himself will be present in your life. And the language there carries this idea of being tangible. You will know God's presence in your life. You'll experience God's presence in your life. And the tool is this. Focus on, and then he gives you a list. Whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy in any way, all of those things, that whole list, that's the tool. Dwell on those things. What's the exact opposite message we get in the culture today? Dwell on? Well, dwell on yourself. That's one of them. Yep. What else? Dwell on things. What else? What gets the most clicks on social media? Huh? Negative stuff, controversial stuff, scandal, ha, 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 
Tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. Is there more? Is there more? Is there more? Oh, what did he do today? What did he tweet today? I mean, you see? You see? We get distracted. If we want to know God's presence in our life, we've got to be able to filter that out and focus on what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good, excellent, and praiseworthy. And he says along with that, we practice what we've seen. In Paul's example, maybe you have a mentor who's mentoring you in the journey. Maybe you have a life group. Somehow we're practicing these things together in community, practicing following Jesus. I want you to notice this morning these tools. Do you notice they all build on one another? Like if, you, if you lay these out side by side in your notes, they actually build on each other. If you start with a simple dedication of your time, you start with a simple dedication of your time, it helps you remain teachable and discerning. If you start with a dedication of your time, you remain teachable and discerning, which in turn helps you to keep the peace and stay focused on what is good, right, and true. So they build on each other. They build on each other. Now this may seem like a laundry list of do's, and I don't want you to walk out of here this morning like, oh man, I got these tools and all this stuff I got to do. I want you to look very carefully at the notes and reflect on the notes before you take action on any of them. And notice that every single one of them, whether it's the principle or the tool, they all begin as a heart issue. They're not action items before they're heart items. It starts with a heart attitude in each and every single one of them, and then it becomes action. That's the very nature of the gospel. It's a heart issue, a faith first, and then it becomes an action item that comes through us. The tools to live and follow Jesus are exactly the same. So, seem impossible? Let me just point out to you that a few verses down in chapter 4, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he says that from prison. He says that, as Gilbert pointed out, after shipwreck, after being bitten by snakes, after being stoned and presumed dead and thrown outside the city and gets up and walks back and gets his stuff and moves on. He says that after being, uh, being persecuted and, and having to stand before kings and rulers and justify his own case and justify Jesus. Paul's in prison and he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's not impossible. Jesus is enough. Paul didn't see anything as a setback. He saw it as a setup. He saw it as a setup. It's an opportunity. And he was persistent. He was going to press into that opportunity until either the, the, the blind saw, the deaf heard, the lame walked, the dead rose, or the enemy gave up. Whatever it was, that's what Paul's approach was. So this morning, maybe you're, you know, maybe you've come out of the aha series and you're like, okay, you know, I had my aha moment uh, and I'm not really sure what to do with this thing. How do I, how do I begin to, I, I want you to go back and just look at the tools. Look at the tools. How do I begin to cultivate an attitude of walking with Jesus? And maybe you've been in this journey for a while and you're like, yeah, 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 okay, you know, I've heard this before, blah, blah, blah. I, I want to ask you just very simply, how are you living it in the midst of community? How are you living it with one another, one-to-one -one and one uh, on group. So are you sharing things like this in your life group? There's several questions that are going to be in the life group. So for you, if this is an entry point, if this is a place where you're thinking, you know, how do I do this? I need some people around me to help me. 
get connected to a life group. Because if you get connected to a life group, that's a place where you can begin to bounce these ideas off, off of other people and, you know, how to use the tool. You know, any, anybody skilled tradesmen in here? Plumbers, electricians, carpenters? Okay, wow. So, uh, well, I know the industry is shrinking, but I didn't think it was shrinking that much. Um, when you learn a trade, you apprentice in that trade, which means you work alongside of somebody learning what they know. And then you become a journeyman, which means you have learned as much as you could as an apprentice, and now you are gaining your expertise in the trade. And if you gain enough expertise in the trade, then you become a master. That is essentially what we need to do with the tools. And the way that we do that is in community with one another. So we can apprentice alongside of one another in, in one-to-one relationships or in life groups. We can become journeymen and we can continue to walk together and gain expertise and, and skill level in being able to live out our life with Jesus. And then we become masters. And as masters, we begin to take on other people and help them along the way. That's what Paul's asking us to do. And if we do that, the promise is God's, present will, God's presence will be with us. His peace will guard our hearts and minds. And we will have great joy. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, it's... It's fun sometimes to tell on ourselves. Sometimes it's scary to tell on ourselves. Where we succeed, where we struggle, what we do well, what we don't do well. But the reality is, Lord, there's only one who's perfect, and that's you. There's only one who perfectly satisfies, that's you. So, Father, wherever each of us are this morning, I pray that you would by your Holy Spirit, you would see that deeply into our hearts that you are enough. Not we got this, but you got this. Whether we're staring down a challenging situation or staring down a dark place or walking down a dark path, whatever it is, Lord, you've got this. And you've got us. So Father, if that's not, if that's not firmly implanted us this morning, I pray that, Lord, meet us where we're at and begin to work by your Holy Spirit to build that confidence, that knowledge that you our God, and we're not. You've got this. And Father, where, we, where we've, that's already settled for us. Pray that you help us to start to use the tools to love, to respect one another, to listen to one another, to be teachable and discerning. So we can grow. But that we also keep the peace and focus on what is good. So we can, have, we can know that you are protecting our hearts and our minds and allowing us, Lord, to step into this world with your presence and show other people they don't have to live in the shadow. They don't have to live in the frenzy of all the information that's out there. God, we love you and we praise you. I pray that as we approach Christmas and we think about your presence physically being among us as a baby and growing into a man who, who then gave a, your life for us, or as we approach that season, that you would be enough, and we would approach with a great and glorious joy to know that no matter how this holiday season goes, no matter how the Christmas and New Year's season goes, 
you are the reason we celebrate and you're enough. Let your joy explode in us, Lord. And let us be gracious and gentle and loving to those around us, serving the needs that we see. We praise you and we give you the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.